It's good to be back with all of you. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 23. You're moving a little faster than we have moved so far. And I was calculating uh, based on what we call as pericopies or paragraphs, how long will it take for us to get through the rest of the book? Well, you just have to come to find out. But we will faithfully go through as the text demands from us uh, to, to understand it and then to apply it to our lives. So turn uh, in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 23, and we'll, Lord willing, plan on covering the entire chapter today. And among the many powerful reasons for the authenticity and the truthfulness of the Bible is the coming to pass of the prophecies mentioned in the Bible. Uh, theologians tell us that more than 25% of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. And the Bible stands alone in, its, uh, in the level of detail and in the level of accuracy when it comes to fulfillment of prophecies and, and promises of God. Uh, for example, uh, that the Israelites will be in exile and will return to their land after 70 years of exile was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. In fact, Isaiah goes even further than that. He tells us about 150 years before they return, who is the king that will be in power under whose reign the Israelites or the southern kingdom will return. He mentions that in his book of Isaiah. Also, as we think of prophecies and promises being fulfilled, uh, there is this aspect of dual fulfillment in the scriptures. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, there was an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. There's an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Let me give you an example. Uh, for example, the prophet Samuel prophesied about King David to King David, and this is what he says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now David's son Solomon would become king, and ultimately he did build the temple, thus partially fulfilling the prophecy, but the complete fulfillment of that prophecy is found in Christ, the greater son of David. The angel Gabriel said about Jesus in Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Did you see that? There was an immediate fulfillment in David's son, Solomon. And then there was an ultimate fulfillment in his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, Jesus is building his church, a house for God's name, Matthew 16, 18. He will become the eternal king on David's throne. And he will establish the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. So in that sense, Solomon was the partial fulfillment of Samuel's words, but Jesus is the greater Solomon and the more thorough fulfillment. There is this sense then of 
dual or partial fulfillment of prophecy in the scriptures. Uh, there is a sense then of the already, but not yet. The already, but not yet. And we see that sense of already, but not yet even played out in the chapter that we have in front of us today. What is played out in this chapter is also true of a believer's life. There is a sense in which the promises made by the Lord and communicated to us in the pages of the scriptures have already been fulfilled. But there's also a sense and there is, in which there is an ultimate fulfillment that is yet to be realized. In, in one sense, we already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, right? But in another sense, we are yet to experience the fullness of those blessings. In one sense, we are justified and redeemed and adopted and sanctified and saved. In another sense, they're not fully realized yet. Uh, for example, Jesus is king in one sense, and we who are, who are his followers are a part of his kingdom. And yet there is a fuller sense in which he will come as a king to reign in the millennial, in the millennial, millennial kingdom mentioned in Revelation 20. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, you live in this tension. Uh, this chapter, the one that we will look at today, is a great reminder that the believer lives and moves and has his being in this already, but not yet. And therefore, I've titled our lesson for tonight, Already, But Not Yet. Already, But Not Yet. Here's how I would summarize our text for today. The believer lives in the already, but not yet. The believer lives in the already, but not yet by living in such a way that his or her actions in the present reveals their faith in the future fulfillment of God's promises. You live and I live as a follower of Christ in the already but not yet, and we live in such a way that our actions in the present reveal our faith in the future fulfillment of God's promises. It's something like some of us who are engaged now, that engagement ring promises something greater that will happen in the future. So we're not to mistake the engagement for the wedding. And I think that's a sense we can, don't, don't take that example much further than that, but that's a sense that we have in this particular chapter. So turn to Genesis chapter 23. Let me read the first two verses. Now Sarah lived 127 years these were the years of the life of Sarah. Uh, Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. As we come to these first two verses, we see here Abraham's despair over Sarah's death. Uh, the first two verses set the stage for what happens in the rest of the chapter. Uh, we are informed about one of the first to have died without seeing the promise being fulfilled. And we are informed in these two verses of one of the first to have died without seeing the promise being fulfilled. Uh, this is the death, in a sense, of the first matriarch, Sarah. We are told uh, in verse 1 that she was 127 years old when she died. Uh, that means uh, 37 years after she gave birth to Isaac, she dies. 
Remember, she was 65 when God called Abraham to leave uh, Haran and go to the land of Canaan. Uh, just assuming that she was married somewhere around the age of 20 or earlier, we can say that she was married to Abraham for more than 100 years. Well, that is a long, long time to be married. And also, just as a side note, Sarah is actually the only woman in the Bible whose age is mentioned at her death. You know, Sarah had been on Abraham's side for well over 100 years. She was his companion, his soulmate from Ur to Haran and then to Canaan and then to Egypt and then from one place to another within the promised land. As you think of their partnership, uh, you think that she was right there when God called Abraham from Ur and Haran. Uh, she was right there when God made the covenant promises to Abraham. Uh, she was right there when Abraham defeated those five armies with a mere 318 men. Uh, she was right there when Abraham was greeted by this priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, and she saw Abraham offer one-tenth of everything that he had earned. Uh, she was right there when Abraham in interceded on behalf of his nephew Lot and for Sodom and Gomorrah. And she was right there with Abraham. But she was not only there during the time of his successes, she also witnessed close hand some of his failures, didn't she? Uh, she, wo she was gently cajoled into participating in Abraham's lies about she being his sister rather than his wife. Not once, but twice. And of course, she had her own failures too. She was instrumental in what would become a disastrous decision in the end as she encouraged uh, Abraham to take on Hagar. And out of that union came Ishmael and his descendants who are in conflict with the Israelites even until this day. Also, she was instrumental in sending Hagar and Ishmael away. But in spite of her failures, she is actually noted as an outstanding example of faith as a godly woman. In fact, she, we are told in scriptures, she is someone who needs to be followed, someone who needs to be emulated, whose example needs to be followed. Isaiah actually mentions, he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, Peter calls Sarah a holy woman and an example of what submission looks like. You know, on a side note, we are never asked to follow the example of Mary. We are never asked to emulate Mary, but we are encouraged to consider following the example of Sarah. And then we are told, verse 2, that she died in Kiryat Arba, which was later called as Hebron. And just in case that is not clear, we are told that this was the land of, in the land of Canaan, that is the promised land. You know, Hebron as a location is first mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, or rather Genesis chapter 13, a place where Abraham settles after parting with his nephew Lot. And that's where Hebron is. But this is also the place where the Lord first showed Abraham the land that would belong to him and his offsprings. And that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 to 17. And then we are told it is here that Sarah dies. Sarah dies. 
what does Abraham do? We're told that Abraham went into mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So it's appropriate perhaps to stop here and consider the reality of death. Another painful reminder of the consequences of sin. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, 1. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Death, then, is the end of our physical life. It is a real thing. And some of us have faced that in our own families recently. It is real. It is painful. But also appropriate to consider the believer's response to death of a loved one. You know, Abraham teaches us something as a believer, doesn't he? It is appropriate to mourn and weep for the loss of a dear one. On the one hand, it is natural. But on the other hand, death is not normal. It is a painful reminder that that is not how God created us to be. It is painful because it violates who God is at his core. You see, God is a God of life. He's a God of the living. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. And so when someone dies, it is a reminder of what sin has done to man. And so it is appropriate to mourn and to weep. And yet, as Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians, we don't mourn as one without hope. Uh, the two words uh, used there to express not only express the traditional way in which Abraham mourned for Sarah, uh, that is the word mourn there, which is in keeping with the rites and the rituals of that day, but the we word weep actually reveals an open expression of the loss and despair that Abraham felt when Sarah died. Now, when you weep for a loved one, you're showing that you feel the loss keenly. You're recognizing that death is not a friend, but an enemy. And it is sin that has brought this consequence on us. Sarah dies. Her death, though, brings about an event that takes up most of the rest of the chapter. In fact, the next 16 verses will be filled with that. It is, an, it is important to detail this dealing that Abraham is about to get into, because at the end of that dialogue and discussion, Abraham, the great patriarch, comes away with the right of ownership to a piece of land. A piece of land that was already promised to him by Yahweh. And what the dialogue reveals is in line with the customs and traditions of the ancient Near East of how business was conducted. Uh, there are a total of three dialogues that we will consider one at a time. And as we consider this dialogue, don't forget uh, that the land that they are standing on where this dialogue is taking place, the entire land of Israel was something that was already promised to Abraham. That brings us then to the larger section of this text, which is Abraham's dealings with the Hittites. We look at the first dialogue as we consider Abraham and the sons of Heth, verse 3. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
Notice, first of all, the respect that Abraham accords to the Hittites. He rose from where he was as he spoke to the sons of Heth. Now, he could have just sat down and spoken with them uh, because he's, after all, mourning for his wife, but he gives them the respect that is due to them as they are the ones who are reigning over the land at the moment. Now, secondly, note how Abraham describes himself. He says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. You have to remember that by this time, Abraham has actually been in the land of Canaan for almost 62 years. He moved there when he was 75, and now it's 62 years that have passed. There was a brief excursion, of course, in Egypt when there was famine, but apart from that, he has been in this land. And yet his description of himself is that he is a stranger and a sojourner. Well, that description really accurately captures also your circumstances and mine in this world. Uh, this world, the world that we currently live in, is not our home. Uh, we are strangers and sojourners. You know, we can be tempted to mistake our temporary homes for our permanent homes. Of course, living in this country, you're aware of more than I am, really, of what people talk about when they say the American dream. Now, that's a mistake. That's to mistake our temporary home for our permanent home. Isn't it Paul who says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our true believers always recognize the fact that this is not our permanent home. The eternal home is our permanent home. Throughout the scriptures, as you see godly men and women, there is a recognition in their hearts and minds about this reality. Moses knew this and recognized this. He records in Leviticus 25, 23, the Lord telling him, and this is what the Lord says, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Not only does Moses recognize this, even David knows this and recognizes this. In his prayer, remember that he offers when the people dedicated material for the building of the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, this is what David prays. He says, for all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. You know, most of us are citizens of this great nation, but we don't want to forget that our ultimate identity is that our citizenship is in heaven. And already, but not yet. And already, but not yet. And Abraham says to them, then as he reminds them that he's a sojourner and a stranger, he asks them to give him a burial site among them that he may bury his dead out of his sight. Now that is a significant request. It is significant because in the Eastern culture, burial was usually in one's native land. And in buying or wanting to buy a piece of land in Canaan, Abraham was actually making a statement. And what is that statement? He's basically making it clear where he's putting his roots down. He's making this portion of the land an ancestral home for his descendants. In other words, there's now no going back to the land of Haran, where he came from. 
you know, just a few verses back, if you were to look at the end of chapter 22, we were reminded of the ancestral land where Abraham came from. But that's not where Abraham sees his future. God has called him to Canaan, and he's going to remain in Canaan. As I think and reflect on my own background and story, uh, when it was clear to, to Esther and I that the Lord was calling us to full-time vocational ministry, at that time we were in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, both of us were working, we had jobs, we had a house, all our three kids were born there. But once it was clear to us uh, that vocational ministry is where God was calling us and leading us to, I was the first one to resign from my job. Of course, we had talked about it at home. I resigned from my job in May of 2014. And at that time, I'd worked for about 12 years with a shipping company. A year after that, Esther resigned from her job. And then we sold our house, and we packed our belongings, and we moved to Texas, the promised land. No. <laughs> no, we, we moved to Texas. We did that because the seminary that I wanted to study in was, was here. We, we sold all our belongings, and we, we sold our house, and we packed all our belongings because we did not want... Uh, anything to tempt us to move back to Charlotte. And apart from our friends, there was nothing to go back to there. You know, I, I'm reminded of that song, and uh, certainly not wanting to, uh, to, to prop myself up here, but I, I was reminded as I was studying this passage, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I think that's what Abraham is saying here, by wanting to buy a piece of land. You see, Abraham's decision to buy a burial site was another way of saying, I'm not going back. We are not going back. My children are not going back. That was our past. That was history. I am living in line with the fact that I'm a new creation. And so to Abraham's burial request, the sons of Heth respond in verse 5 and verse 6. Notice verse 6. They address him as Lord. In fact, as a mighty prince, uh, they, even as unbelievers, they recognized his growth and his might and his influence in the land. After all, he's been here for 62 years. In fact, the word there translated as prince is actually the word Elohim, which is to say they call him, you are a mighty God. And when a man's ways please the Lord, he not only makes his enemies to be at peace with him, but he also makes his neighbors acknowledge and see God's hand upon him. Uh, as you look at and see this discussion between Abraham and the sons of Heth, you know, there is a certain sense of respect and decorum in the conversation. Uh, there is respect that is due, and in the way that they are speaking with each other, uh, you can see a certain dignity in the relationship. But that can be really deceptive as you consider it in another sense because Abraham here, in fact, is looking to buy a burial site. But the ones occupying the site right now do not want to sell the land to him. You know, interestingly, the same word that is translated as give, if you notice verse 4, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you, give me a burial site. Notice verse 9, for the full price, let him give it to me. It's also mentioned in verse 11 and 13. In fact, the same word can also be translated, is also translated as sell. 
In fact, the NIV translates it, this particular verse, as sell. Abraham then wants to buy the site, but the Hittites just want to give it to him. You can say, well, what's, what's, so, what's so bad about that? Well, you know, you can have your cho choices grazed. We will give it to you. You don't have to buy. But what happens when someone just gives you something? They can easily take it back, can't they? Legally speaking, the ownership remains with the giver. And so Abraham recognizes this, and that leads us to dialogue number 2. That's from verse 7 to verse 11. This is Abraham's dialogue with the people of the land. Notice verse 7. And so Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. And notice again the respect that Abraham gives the Hittites. Uh, this time he not only rises, he also bows to the people. Verse 7. Now to bow to someone is to actually show respect to them. Now that same word is also translated. In fact, it's frequently translated as worship. Worship. Uh, this is what we do when we worship God. We bow before him. That is, we are saying we are subject to your will upon our life. Now, of course, Abraham is showing respect. He's not worshiping these people, but the word is the same. You know, in the first dialogue, the Hittites are willing to give him the choicest of graves. In fact, they go further and say, you can have any burial site you want, verse 6. And so now Abraham gets specific. He says in verse 8, if you want me to bury my dead out of my sight, then would you approach Ephron, from the son of Zohar, on my behalf? I would like to purchase a specific piece of land, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, he says. And this is at the end of his field. I'm willing to give him the full price, and I'm willing to buy it in the presence of you all, or y'all, in Texas. You know, to Abraham's offer, notice what, what they say. And now we are told in verse 10 that Ephron was one of the ones sitting in the crowd. And so instead of anyone else responding, he's the one who answers Abraham in front of all the leaders. Now for the first time we are told in verse 10 that the discussion, this particular discussion is taking place at the gates of the city. Uh, this is not a discussion in someone, uh, someone's home, in the, not in the privacy of someone's house, but this was happening at the gate of the city, which is to say that this was the official place of business. It was the courthouse, so to say. Agreements made here, in other words, were binding on the parties. Now, suddenly, the whole discussion takes a serious tone, a very formal tone. Now, you might ask, why doesn't Abraham approach uh, Ephron directly? Well, most likely because he did not want to make it embarrassing for Ephron to say no to his request. And so he doesn't approach him directly, but through the men that are sitting there. What does Ephron say? Notice verse 11. And here we are given a taste of negotiations as they took place in the ancient Near East. Notice verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, 
in the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. The site is again offered to Abraham. And three times in this text, we see Ephron offering to give the place to Abraham. I give you the field. I, I give you the cave that is in it. And then again, at the end, I give it to you. Now, to a normal reader, Ephron may come across as a magnanimous owner of a field who is just giving a piece of his property to Abraham. But individuals who conducted business uh, in this culture knew that it was not that Ephron was just uh, trying to be magnanimous, but that he was intending to sell his property. Now, how do we know that? Well, one hint is in the text itself. You know, Abraham wanted to buy a burial site. In fact, he wanted to buy just a cave to bury his dead. But Ephron, as a shrewd businessman, also adds the field to the deal. Notice verse 11. I give you the field. In other words, a cave in a field I own just doesn't cut it for me. It's not the best deal for me. If you want to buy the cave, you'll also need to buy the field along with it. That's one hint. There's a couple more hints that this is a transaction, a buy, a buying and selling that is taking place. Now that offer from Ephron then leads us to our third dialogue, which is mentioned from verse 12 to verse 18. Abraham and Ephron, the son of Zohar. Notice verse 12. Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron directly now in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land, notice, worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Like the previous two occasions, this one also begins with Abraham actually showing respect. What a tremendous humility from a man of God. Abraham showing respect and honor to the people of the land. He bows before them. And this time, as I mentioned, he addresses Ephron directly. And he does that in the hearing of the people of the land. Which is to say, they're acting as witnesses to the agreement that is happening in their presence. And Abraham reiterates once more. And this is the second hint. That he's willing to give the price of the field. And notice, not just the cave or the burial site anymore. It is the field that he's willing to buy. And he ends that section with a final plea to sell the, the field to him. And to this plea then Ephron responds and he says, notice verse 15. My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. That's our third hint that there's a deal taking place. He says a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what's the big deal? Go ahead and bury your, your dead. For a piece of land, that is an exorbitant amount that Ephron wants for his field. There have been enough hints dropped so far to tell us that there is a business transaction taking place. Now, why is that an exorbitant amount? Well, David actually, as a king, paid one-eighth of this amount, only 50 shekels, Almost a thousand years later, he only paid one-eighth of the amount for the purchase of the temple site. Remember in 2 Samuel 24, 24? Uh, Jeremiah, in his book, records 
in Jeremiah 32 that he paid 17 shekels for a piece of land that was north uh, east of Jerusalem. Just 17 shekels. So think now that Ephron wants almost 400 shekels. This gives you a sense of the price and the enormous amount that Ephron is charging Abraham. Almost feels as though he's taking advantage of Abraham's situation. You know, the place is agreed. We know what place Abraham wants. The price is now quoted. It's now time to make a counter offer according to the customs and traditions. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with ancient Near East, typically a person wanting to sell something usually quoted double the price. And when the counter offer was made, it was usually half the quoted price, which was actually the price that it was supposed to be sold at to begin with. But Abraham doesn't even go there. God has blessed Abraham so abundantly that he chooses to be generous. He agrees to pay the price and he does not bargain. Notice verse 17. So Ephron's field, which was, uh, verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. He agrees to buy the field, no bargaining at all. Verse 17. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, uh, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. This is now a formal and a final agreement between Abraham and Ephron. Our witnesses are present, like we read before, sons of Heth and the people of the land. They were at the gates of the city. The property borders were outlined. The field that belonged to Ephron, we are told, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, all the trees which were in the field. The terms of exchange were agreed upon. The payment was measured and verified, and the property now handed over to Abraham's possession. Now that brings us in the last two verses back to the incidents that prompted all of these dialogues and dealings and this formal agreement. And what was that? It was the death of Sarah, right? So thirdly and finally, we see Abraham's devotion for Sarah on display. Abraham's devotion for Sarah on display. Notice verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over. That means the rights to that property were given over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. We are told that this is the place that Abraham eventually buried his wife, Sarah. He honored her in life, and now he honors her in death. Death and burial, by the way, in ancient Near East were steeped in rituals and traditions. In fact, if you fail to honor in such rituals, it was the greatest possible lack of respect. One study Bible actually comments, improper burial was equal to a curse. And so Abraham gives her an honorable burial. But not only does Abraham give Sarah an honorable burial, 
we are again reminded in these verses where the field and the cave were. Uh, this place was facing Mamre again, we are told. And we are told that it is Hebron and it is the land of Canaan. What is that? It's the promised land. Uh, this was the piece of land Ephron's field, the ownership rights which were handed over to Abraham. His descendants now have a place to call their own. You see, Abraham, we are told in chapter 25, will be buried here. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah are buried here. We're told that in uh, Genesis 49. Leah is buried here, Jacob's first wife. And Jacob himself will be buried here as well. As we come to the end of the chapters, perhaps you're asking yourself, even as I was asking myself, what, what is the purpose of this chapter? What are the truths that God wants us to know and understand from this chapter? After all, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what is the purpose of these? I want to draw four applications or lessons for us as I draw our time to a close. Uh, first of all, God's people recognize the reality of death. God's people recognize the reality of death. You know, in, chapter, in a chapter that has just 20 verses, there are at least nine references to the dead or to death. Notice verse 2, we are told Sarah has died. Uh, verse 3, uh, Abraham rose from before his dead. Uh, verse 4, uh, verse 6, twice in verse 6. Uh, verse 8, Verse 11, verse 13, verse 15, death, 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 dead, bury your dead. In other words, this, just, this chapter really stinks of death, right? There's death all over this chapter. It's sad on one hand and discouraging on the other, but it's also real. The reality of death is placed right front and center. Uh, God's word does not make any effort to hide the fact that death is real. And the fact that one day all of us, yes, all of us one day will, will die. Unless, of course, the Lord returns and takes his own with him. And that tells me that your days and my days are, are numbered. We are mere breath. The length of our life is like the water that's dropped on the earth. It's there for a moment and then it disappears. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 14, we are told we are like water that is spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. James writes in James 4, verse 14, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Psalm 144, verse 4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, falls. In Psalm 39 verse 4, the psalmist says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. We have zero grounds being proud before our God. 
God's people then recognize the reality of death. Secondly, uh, God's people long for heaven. God's people long for heaven. You know, Abraham was mindful of the fact that he's a mere stranger and a sojourner on this earth. This was not his permanent home. Uh, that he was a pilgrim. He was a passerby. He was a tenant. He was a nomad by background and as a believer. He knew that his eternal home was his real home. And if you're a child of God, that, that is the, the cry of your heart, that this is not your real home. In fact, in the hall of the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, uh, this is what the writer notes about Abraham. Listen, Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Uh, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Verse 11, verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has, found, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You know, longing for heaven is actually the sign of a true believer. We are not to get too comfortable here. Yes, we are to enjoy the blessings that God gives us here, but we are not to get too comfortable here. And longing for heaven is a sign of a true believer. In Job 19, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The same writer, Paul, writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you long for heaven? You should if you are a believer. God's people long for heaven. Thirdly, God's son was the ultimate sojourner. God, God's son was the ultimate sojourner. This might be difficult to see at first, but think with me. If there was one who can be identified as an ultimate sojourner, it had to be our Lord. It was said of our Lord, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This was not his home. He came from his father in glory, and he returned to his father in glory. He would say to his disciples, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Nicholas Batzik, writing in the Table Talk magazine, says this, Jesus is the heavenly sojourner traveling through the foreign land of this fallen world to the eternal inheritance he came to possess by the way of the cross. Jesus is the heavenly sojourner traveling through the foreign land of this fallen world to the eternal inheritance he came to possess by the way of the cross. 
He came to inherit the world by passing through the world and finishing the work of redemption. You know, think about it. The land was already promised to Abraham. But in an act of faith, Abraham bought a piece of that land that was already promised to him. Uh, that, that act screams of Abraham's trust in the fulfillment of God's promises. You see, in one sense, all who are created in the image of God are the children of God. But Christ still had to come into our world to purchase with his unblemished blood a people for his own. That's what he did through his life, his death, and his resurrection. God's son then was the ultimate sojourner. And if he was a sojourner, what does that say about you and me? We are strangers and sojourners in this world. Fourthly and finally, God's people live in the already but not yet. God's people live in the already but not yet. You see, Abraham's act of purchasing the burial site in the promised land shows us at least two things. He fully believed that God will fulfill the promises that he had made about the land. God had promised the land to him and to his descendants, and he, by buying a piece of that land, he was saying, I believe you, Lord. I believe your promises will come to pass. I am not going back to Ur or to Haran. But not only that, he recognized that God's promises to him and his descendants extend beyond him and his death. death. In other words, God's promises are not exhausted in this lifetime. If you're still in Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 11 verse 16 says this. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. In verse 13, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, God's promises are not exhausted in this lifetime. And what is true of Abraham is also true for you and for me. What God has in store for you and for me is far greater than what you and I experience in the now. We think we know a 500-piece puzzle with 10 pieces of puzzles that we hold in our hands. But God's word is saying, what is in store for you in the future is far, is far greater than what you are experiencing even right now. Uh, in the epistle of John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There's a certain reality in the, in the present, and then there's a certain reality in the future. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Already, but not yet. Romans 8 verse 30 says, we will be glorified, or we are glorified. And then Ephesians 2 6, 6 says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It speaks as though those realities are completed acts in the present. Now, if you're honest, we don't always feel very glorified, do we? Nor do our surroundings resemble heavenly realms all the time. That's because... Our sp present spiritual reality does not match up with our future physical reality. 
But one day, one day they will be one. And in the meantime, we live in the already, but not yet. Now this is the only way to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith in God's promises. And what is that? It's that your life, your actions, your thoughts, your decisions are to be in line with those promises. If you're a child of God, and God's word tells you that you're a child of God as you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then live like a child of God. That's the implication. What are some promises that we can consider as I close my time? I think about this, Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that? If you believe it, then live like it. Isaiah 26.3 The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. John 16.33 Lord says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now that is implications both in the present and in the future. Do you really believe that Jesus has overcome the world? then you and I need to live like he has. And finally, Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Those promises are by our Lord. And we as believers live in the already, but not yet. Let's close our time in a word of prayer as we get into small groups. Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. What a great man of faith we have in Abraham. Even though he sees that all the promises did not come to fulfillment in his lifetime or in Sarah's lifetime, he buys a piece of property showing uh, or putting his faith on full display, saying, I believe that even though only one or two of the promises have come true in my lifetime, I know that you're a trustworthy God and you will fulfill all your promises in the future. How true that is of us as well. We thank you for your promises of your presence with us. We thank you for your promise of perfect peace because we trust in you. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement that we have from your word that you have overcome the world. We thank you for the promises from your word that we will find rest for our souls as we come to you all weary and heavy laden and that you will give us rest. Let that impact how we live on a daily basis. Help us to be heavenly minded while you keep us here on earth to accomplish your plans and purposes. I do pray for the small groups and the discussions that we will have. May these truths be grounded in our hearts. May that reflect in our actions every day. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.